Well, you know, speaking of the big football day yesterday, once there was a football game between the animals and the insects, the two squads gathered up on the gridiron for a real grudge match. Dressing out for the animals was the elephant and the lion and the tiger and the bear. Suiting up for the insects were the firefly and the worm and the flea and the gnat. Well, you can imagine the outcome. The animals dominated. Every time the elephant ran the ball, he went 40, 50 yards. The lion swept around the end for touchdown after touchdown. Defense for the insects was as weak as a flea. And the offense was no better. Every time the yellow jacket dropped back to pass, he was sacked by the bulldog. <laughs> Oops. Oh, I did. That just slipped out. I'm sorry. Well, the halftime score was unbelievably pathetic. Catch this. The animals, 70. The insects, zero. You know, you probably assume now that the animals had the game locked up. But at the start of the second half, a new player entered the game for the insects. The centipede. And his impact was immediate and dramatic. The centipede ran the opening kickoff all the way back for a touchdown. He scored every time he touched the ball. Nobody could tackle him. He ran, he passed, he blocked. He was an incredible player. And on defense, the centipede would break through the line and he'd grab the elephant and he'd throw him down to the ground, tackling for a loss. The centipede dominated the second half and led the insects to a dramatic come-from-behind victory. Final score, animals 70, insects 77. Wow. Well, after the game, the, the elephant and the lion, they were curious. And so they, they came up and they asked the flea. They said, this centipede, man, he's quite a player. Where did he come from? Why didn't he play in the first half? And that's when the flea replied, hey, it, it takes a centipede a whole half just to put on his shoes. <laughs> you, you get it? He's got so many shoes. You get it? Well, as it turns out, this football-playing centipede was one big, bad bug. And this was the situation facing the prophet Joel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The Jewish nation was facing a big, bad bug. Not a centipede, but a plague of grasshopper-like locusts. In an age before pesticides and long before the Orkin man, a black cloud of locusts had swept across the fertile fields outside of Jerusalem. The plague had killed the nation's crop and had crippled Judah's economy. And Joel was appointed to call a wayward nation back to God. Verse 1 begins, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now all we know for sure about the prophet, we learn from his introduction. And all he gives us here is his name and his parentage. Joel means Jehovah is God. His name spoke of God's nature. The Hebrew God was the one true God. Jehovah is God. It speaks of God's sovereignty. The God of the Hebrews is God. He does whatever he likes, whenever he likes, however he likes, to whomever he likes. I hope you know this. God does as he pleases. 
He rules the universe. God is the boss. And God's sovereignty becomes a central theme to the book of Joel. Now we're not given a date for Joel's prophecy, but from the book's content we assume it was written in the reign of King Joash around 830 B.C. This would make Joel one of the first, or perhaps the first, of the writing prophets. Two other prophets were contemporaries of Joel. The prophet Obadiah prophesied to Edom. And of course, Elisha, you remember Elisha, he ministered to Israel. Now in verse 2, Joel cuts right to the chase. He describes the seriousness of the nation's situation. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? Or even in the days of your fathers? This was an unprecedented plague in the history of the nation. Never before had Judah faced circumstances of this magnitude. And Joel spells out the disaster that has come upon God's people. <clears throat> he writes in verse 4, What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. You know, once I was in Nashville, Tennessee for a weekend, and I learned that once every 14 years or so, Nashville is plagued by locusts. Buried eggs suddenly hatch, and these locusts start to swarm and fill the air. I'd be walking down the sidewalk when these little critters would smack me right in the face. I mean, the locust bugged me the whole trip. You know, a locust is a dull yellow or red colored insect. They look like short, plump grasshoppers. A locust is about three inches long, and then it also has two antennae another inch or so long on top of their head. Surprisingly, get up close and personal with a locust and you'll notice its face looks like that of a horse. Swarms of locusts travel at incredible speeds and multiply in enormous numbers. Swarms resemble a black cloud moving across the landscape. A swarm of locusts can be as high as 100 feet tall, 4 or 5 miles long. When the locusts are on top of you, it looks like a solar eclipse. But the most fearsome characteristic of a plague of locusts is their ferocious appetite. A swarm of locusts will strip every green plant of its vegetation. It'll devastate fig trees and barley fields and vineyards. In fact, Joel's locusts remind me of Joey Chestnut. Did you know Joey Chestnut for the last three years? Joey the Jaw Chestnut? has won the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest on Coney Island. The 2009 chow down was a dog fight between two contestants. The 6 foot 1, 218 pound chestnut and 6 time winner, I mean winner, Takira Kobayashi. They fought it out. Chestnut set a world record this past year. He ate 68 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. Pretty impressive. 68 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. Kobayashi finished second. 64 hot dogs. Runner up. Chestnut took home $20,000 in prize money and the prestigious 
mustard belt. There it is. Making joy indeed the top dog. But Joy Chestnut not only holds the record for hot dogs. Check this out. In September 2006, he set a world record for waffles. He ate 23 waffles in 10 minutes at the Waffle House Waffle Eating Championship here in Atlanta. In 2007, Joy pigged out on 45 pulled pork sandwiches in 10 minutes during the Myrtle Beach World Barbecue Eating Championship. And in the same year, that this prolific eater ate 103 Crystal Hamburgers at the Crystal Square Off in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Hey, if it's not nailed to the floor, Joy's going to eat it, man. Joy Chestnut has earned the title America's number one competitive eater. Let me just suggest you not invite Joy Chestnut over for Thanksgiving dinner. Probably not a good idea. But Joy Chestnut is a nibbler compared to a single locust. These consuming locusts were devastating. In fact, the four locusts Joel mentions here in verse 4 probably represent the four stages of a locust development. The chewers, they were the babies. The swarmers were the moms. They multiplied in great numbers. The crawlers, they had underdeveloped wings. They would just hop around. They weren't yet able to fly. But the consumers, the consuming locusts, were the full-grown adults. These were the insatiable eaters. These guys could do extensive damage. It's interesting, at the turn of the last century, a plague of locusts swept over Israel and Syria for a total of five months. And scientists were able to document the spread of locusts and their devastation. The mother bugs, they dug four-inch holes into the ground, and then they laid a hundred eggs in each hole. That means a single square meter of dirt contains 70,000 eggs. When the eggs hatched, billions of locusts were unleashed into the air. The swarms were so thick, they would blanket out the sky and the sun. They moved 400 to 600 feet a day, consuming everything, every scrap of vegetation in sight. They say they even ate the bark off the trees. Nothing was left. The earth looked like it had been scorched by fire. You see, locusts even have a nickname. They're called hunger incarnate. And this was the crisis that Judah had endured. At best, this devastation would cripple the nation's economy for generations to come. At worst, the very survival of the people was at stake. This is the kind of plague that would bug anybody. In the Chinese language, words are formed by linking together certain symbols. Take, for example, the word crisis. In Chinese, it's written as the combination of the symbols of two other words. Danger and opportunity. For a crisis is both. On the one hand, yes, it poses a danger. But on the other hand, a crisis can become a great opportunity. And this is what the plague of locusts did for the people of Judah. You see, the locusts were God's way of getting his people's attention. It was time for Judah to wake up to their spiritual condition. Their love for God had grown cold. Their allegiance had drifted. 
No one would ever minimize the loss caused by the crisis of the locusts, but this disaster was an opportunity for them to wake up and sober up in their responsibilities toward God. Notice Joel challenges the people of Jerusalem in verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, it has been cut off from your mouth. Now here's the only specific sin mentioned in the book of Joel. It's the sin of drunkenness. In a few years, idolatry is going to be the big issue. But in the days of Joel, drunkenness and substance abuse were the vices of choice. And 2,800 years later, here in modern America, not much has changed. According to Time Magazine, two-thirds of Americans consume alcohol. America drinks enough alcohol each year for every citizen to down seven bottles of hard liquor, 12 bottles of wine, and 230 cans of beer. Drunkenness is certainly the biggest social problem today that no one wants to talk about. How many violent crimes and sexual crimes are fueled by alcohol and drugs? Especially among our teenagers and our college students. When you read about a violent break-in, or a date rape, or a vehicular homicide, or a case of domestic violence, there is a good probability the abuse of alcohol played a decisive role. John Felding, he referred to alcohol as the liquid fire by which men drink their hell beforehand. And if you have ever had close contact with the life of an alcoholic, you won't consider Fielding's description an exaggeration. Alcohol can devastate lives and families. It clouds our judgment and impairs our decision making and lowers our normal inhibitions. It even deludes us into thinking we're invincible. Intoxication numbs certain feelings that God wants us to address. And if you've ever tried to love an alcoholic, then you are painfully aware of how alcohol can ruin a relationship. Call it hurt in a glass. I believe alcoholism is a sickness, but drunkenness is a sin. See, there's no question that some people are chemically predisposed to alcohol addiction. It's genetic. But once that person realizes their biological makeup, then it becomes a sin for them to take that first drink. See, an alcoholic is always one drink away from a drunk. There's an old AA saying that's true. Once you become a pickle, you can never be a cucumber. This is why alcoholism is a disease, whereas drunkenness is disobedience. You see, an alcoholic should know that he can't handle the booze. Budweiser is not his bud. It's not going to make him wiser. It's impossible for him to drink a few beers with the boys because his few beers are going to become a few more beers and a few more beers. An alcoholic will never drink sociably. He's always one drink away from falling off the wagon. That's why it becomes a sin for him to take that one drink. Now Israel in the days of Joel, they had thrown caution to the wind. To escape the reality of what was bugging them, drunkenness had spread like wildfire. Now imagine the effects of this plague of locusts. Unemployment was at an all-time high. 
Families couldn't make ends meet. Home foreclosures were up. There was little money for healthy diversion. Sound familiar? And to escape life's harshness, the people were getting plastered. They were destroying their family, their body, and their witness. Notice here chapter 1 verse 12. It sums up the impact of this plague on the nation. It says, the vine has dried up and the fig tree was withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. And that was so obvious. It was obvious to the naked eye. But this cat scan gets deeper. It shows what's in the heart. And then he says, for surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Joy has also withered. Israel is barren and bombed. Not just the shrubs, but their joy has withered away. They've turned now to artificial stimulants. They're getting a high from Jack, not Jesus. The Jews faced a crisis. But you see, a crisis is an opportunity to drink deeply the refreshment that God offers, not the numbing potions of this world. You see, how should Judah have responded to this crisis? How should you respond to the crisis in your life when your faith is tested, when your joy starts to wither? Rather than pull out a bottle or pull up to a bar, Joel has another remedy. Twice in the book, chapters 1 verse 14 and chapter 2 verse 15, he says this, Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Here's what he suggests. God tells, Joel tells God's people to pull back from this crisis. You know, whenever we face a crisis, the first thing we need to do is to pull back. To create some space and some separation. Call an assembly. Go to God's house. Get His perspective. Before you face the crisis, seek God's face first. Then he says, pull together. Pull back, then pull together. Gather your elders up, your inhabitants of the land, your Christian friends. Call together people of faith who can encourage you and support you and pray for you. In a crisis, you need to seek outside help. Turn to a brother, not a bottle. And then finally, pull apart from this world. Joel says, consecrate a fast. In other words, cut off your normal intake of food or entertainment or sports. Just change your schedule or your priorities just enough to give yourself time to hear from God. This is important. Here's how you respond to a crisis. Rather than pull up to a bar, you pull back. And then you pull together. And then you pull apart and you seek the Lord. Now notice Joel chapter 2. Notice how it begins. Blow the trumpet in Zion. And sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. For it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A day of devastation is coming, Joel warns them. Now this phrase, day of the Lord, it appears five times in the book of Joel. And it's not necessarily a 24-hour period. 
The Hebrew word yom or day can refer to an indefinite period of time. Often you'll hear the phrase day and age. I just can't believe she died of measles in this day and age. It's not a 24-hour cycle. We're talking about an era or a season or an age. The day of the Lord is a time when God takes over the controls. My dad had an unusual method for teaching us in Sunday school. For the first 15 minutes or so, he allowed the fifth grade boys class to talk about whatever we wanted. Girls, baseball, school, it didn't matter. But once the conversation started to die down, my dad would say, All right, boys, now I've been quiet while you talked, and I expect you now to be quiet while I talk. And then he'd present his lesson without a peep from the gallery. In a sense, this is God's attitude in the world today. God is always working behind the scenes. But on the world stage, he's giving man his say. For the most part, godless men are running the show. And yet, on occasion, God will shut man up. He will silence all human voices with an event that forces men to listen to him. This was the effect that the plague of locusts had in Joel's day. God had stepped in to call the shots. You see, whenever Scripture speaks of the day of the Lord, it's talking about a time when God intervenes in human affairs. The plague of locusts was one example, but ultimately the phrase refers to a time yet future. You see, it wasn't just the locusts that would come upon Judah. Verse 2 adds a warning. A people will come, great and strong. The like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Joel even speaks of an invading army. Now think of the book of Joel as my glasses, as trifocal vision. You know, these modern spectacle makers, they, they've done us all a big favor, those of us who have to have the bifocals, you know. Used to be, you, know, you had the bifocals, you could see it. You know, you had the two different lenses all embedded right there in the glasses. But I've actually got trifocals. And you can't even see. It's all just like one glass. But I can look up just a little bit and I can see off into the distance. I can see the teenagers up there in the balcony and, and anything they might be doing wrong. I can see them. <laughs> I can look just straight out. And I can see Mark, the sound man, dozing off back there in the... In the just kidding, Mark. Mark's always right on top of things. And then I can look right down, down in the lower part of my glasses, and I can read the words on the page. Now, Joel also uses a trifocal vision. His prophecy has an immediate fulfillment, this plague of locusts we've been talking about. But it also has an intermediate fulfillment, as we're told in verse 2. An army will come, probably the Assyrians. And then there's a long-range fulfillment. He even sees an invasion in the last days before the second coming of Jesus. Chapter 1 speaks of the locusts. Chapter 2 verse 20 describes a northern army that will do, quote, monstrous things. And chapter 3 takes us all the way out to the end of the age when the nations will be judged in the valley of Jehoshaphat or in the Kidron Valley right there by the Temple Mount in the heart of Jerusalem. Joel 3 verse 14 ultimately speaks of a distant day. He says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. 
For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for His people and the strength of the children of Israel. You can go further in your Bible and read Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And there you'll see that the day of the Lord rocks the planet earth with great tribulation. Cataclysmic judgments of an unprecedented nature precede the coming again of Jesus. As Joel says in chapter 2 verse 11, the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. You know, Joel 2, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, and you can go back and kind of study this later. But that little section of scripture gives us an example of how this trifold vision works. According to verse 2, Joel is speaking of a people or an army. But they look and they act like locusts. Verse 3, surely nothing shall escape them. In verse 4, they have the appearance of horses. And as we've already noted, the locust has the face of a horse. In fact, the Italian word for locust means little horse. But then in verse 5, these same horses, they, they leap over mountaintops. It's incredible. Now, is the author confused over what he sees? Or is he seeing multiple visions simultaneously? I believe the latter is happening here in Joel. Joel does witness the locusts. But he sees an ancient army that are locust-like. That will have a similar impact on the land. And then he sees even further into the future. To an army. Perhaps with Black Hawk helicopters. Spraying firepower. And leaping over mountains. Think about it. How else could a Jew living in the 9th century B.C. describe modern warfare and weapons but by using idioms associated with his own frame of reference? Could be that Joel is getting a glimpse of the last days. You see, today is the day of man. Currently, humans are having their say and getting their way. But the Bible teaches that human history culminates in the day of the Lord. The time is coming when God will have His say. Hey, God gets the final word. You can bet on it. In the end, His will prevails on planet earth. In Genesis, we learned that the Hebrews began their day with nightfall. Genesis said, And the evening and the morning were the first day. Evening started the day. Morning finished the day. Our days begin with daybreak and they end with nightfall. But the Hebrews began their days in the dark and ended them in the light. And so it is with the day of the Lord. It begins with trouble for Israel and for the whole world. The plague of locusts in, in the days of Joel was just a foreshadowing of the coming invasion and eventually the terrible devastations that will occur in the great tribulation. Israel begins the final day in the dark and they will only in the end see the light of Jesus. And embrace his glorious kingdom. And this is how the day of the Lord works in our lives. For what God does prophetically, he also does personally. In your life and in my life. For there are times when God intervenes in our lives. There are times when God shuts us up and gets our attention. He sends a messenger to bug us. Maybe not a literal bug, but a locust-like trial 
or hassle. Maybe a tough economy. Maybe an unexpected layoff. And in our minds, these are monstrous things. And I want you to notice two verses. Chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. This is such a hopeful passage. I want you to see this. God says in verse 20 of chapter 2, But I will remove far from you the northern army, and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land, with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea, his stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Now the next verse. Very next verse. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. To me, that contrast is so stunning. Monstrous things marvelous things and God is responsible for both hey when we need a wake-up call God is faithful when it's time for God to get our attention he's never timid he doesn't mind sending a plague of locusts or any other kind of plague that it takes hey he'll have his day and he'll have his way and your stubbornness is not going to stop him but after the plague has subsided, after the monstrous things are over, God will do marvelous things. In fact, drop down two verses and read with me verse 25. There is no more merciful and encouraging verse in all the Bible. It says, So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, and the crawling locust, and the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty. And be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Put to the test? Yes. Put through the fire? Yeah, you bet. But put to shame? No, never. It's God's will for us to be restored and to never be put to shame. God has power to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Whatever sin has chewed up and spit out in your life, what your foolish pride has ruined, what your own stubbornness has ripped off from your life, God is able to restore what sin has destroyed. God can overcome the terrible consequences of sin in our lives. He doesn't just forgive us. He also restores us. Isn't that amazing? He can restore to you wasted years. And untapped potentials. And lost opportunities. And neglected talents. And squandered blessings. God has ways to compensate us for poor choices and foolish decisions. He can make it up. Perhaps you didn't come to Christ until later in your life. And you look back on the wasted years that you spent without the Lord. Don't worry. God can take and He can restore those wasted years. He can give you back new and better years. Whatever mistakes we made in our youth. Or in our former marriage. Or with our kids. Or in our career. Or even in our ministry. God will pick us up and wipe us off and put us back and make us new. God can do that. 
He can restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Lost years can never be restored literally. Time once past is gone forever. But there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back to you the unripened fruits over which you mourned. The fruits of wasted years may yet be yours. Did you hear that, my friend? The fruits of wasted years may still be saved and savored in your life. As Spurgeon said, God has strange and wonderful ways. If God can put bark back on a tree and cause grapes to grow again on a withered vine, then he can fill my heart with joy. And he can make me useful to him. And he can do the same with you. When Mickey Mantle came up with the Yankees, his manager, Casey Stingle, he told a reporter, he says, this guy is going to be better than Joe DiMaggio and Babe Ruth. But it never happened. He never lived up to his great potential. In fact, just before he died, a premature death, Mickey Mantle held a moving press conference where he admitted to wasting his potential and shortening his career on late nights and heavy drinking. In fact, tears came to his eyes. Mantle confessed, one of the things I messed up besides baseball was being a father. I wasn't a good family man. Perhaps the mistakes you've made with your family are at the top of your list of regrets. Boy, i got to tell you, there are plenty of mistakes that I've made that I deeply regret. You know, if you don't have some regrets this morning, I don't think you're being honest. Because I think we all have regrets. But God can produce in our lives a bumper crop of blessing that will more than make up for our regrets and our failures. That's the promise today. That God can restore to you what the locusts have taken away. What comes next in the prophecy is no accident. Joel chapter 2 verse 28 is the same passage that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost to explain the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the launching of the church. There in Acts 2 verse 16, Peter says to the onlookers, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he takes us right back to our text. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Joel is describing the end of time and the outpouring of the Spirit on the Jewish nation. Joel's focus was on when, but Peter sees the what. What will restore Israel in the last days is the same power behind God's reclamation project in your life today. The outpouring or the filling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what counteracts the chewing of the locusts in our lives. What sin eats away, the Spirit of God will more than restore I'm excited. Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? If not, man, why not? Do you hear the promise here? Joel says that God pours out His Spirit not just on a select few, but on all flesh. Weak flesh and strong flesh and black flesh and white flesh and male flesh and female flesh and Old wrinkled flesh and young perky flesh. Do you get this? Every
Everybody's included. Do you want the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? You can have it. All you have to do is ask. He says old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. I'm a middle-aged man. I'm dreaming about visions and having visions and getting asleep and having dreams. God wants to pour His Spirit out on you. He just wants to dump out on you the Holy Spirit. Do you get that? He wants to just dump the Spirit out on you. Think of the football coach who wins the game. And what happens? And he gets that Gatorade bath. Well, when Jesus gives you the victory, He also pours out His Spirit on you. Jesus just dumps out on you His power, His boldness and His love. And He works miracles. The Spirit goes to work restoring and reclaiming and refurbishing and reimbursing to you the blessings that God intended for you all along. Let me close with a verse in the middle of Joel's prophecy. About halfway through chapter 2, verse 13. This to me is the heart of Joel's message in more ways than one. He says, so, rend or rip your heart and not your garments. Doesn't do any good to tear your garments. Tear your heart. Repent. Return to the Lord. For He is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and of great kindness. And He relents from doing harm. Joel tells us to repent, to come clean, to admit that we've strayed, to come back to God this morning. He's not angry with you. In fact, He's promised to treat you kindly. No, God wants to forgive you. And He wants to restore to you all that sin has taken away. You see, the day of the Lord might begin with darkness, but it ends in the light of his love. There's a happy ending for you. If you'll give all that you have to Jesus this morning.